Good morning, Edgewater. You guys realize it is, Christmas is two weeks from today. Woo! Or, oh no! <laughs> as, the, uh, as the father of four kids under the age of 10, that means my house is full of excitement. So, also as the father of um, four kids, I feel it's my obligation to share with all the other dads uh, my new favorite Christmas dad joke. So, what did one snowman say to the other snowman? Do you smell carrots? <laughs> Have you guys ever stopped to think about the fact that God invented humor? I think that's so cool. Like, he invented the universe and he made the stars, but he was also like, you know what these people need? They need some laughter once in a while in their lives. And I'm gonna bless them with that. What a cool thing that is. Um, my name is James Dennis. I am one of the elders here. Grab your Bibles, turn to the chapter of Luke, uh, turn to the book of Luke, chapter 14. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna jump into a really cool and fun story this morning. So Father, I thank you for this time of year. I thank you that you left heaven, that you put off your deity and you put on humanity, that you came here as a baby to dwell among us and to show us how to treat each other and how to be like you. And ultimately, Lord, you gave yourself for us. As we go through the next couple weeks into this Christmas season, I pray we would be constantly keeping that in the forefront of our minds. Emmanuel means God with us. We're so thankful that you came to be with us. And we're so thankful that you're here with us even this morning. So be in this place, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're gonna start in Luke chapter 14, verse one, and here's what it says. It says, one Sabbath day, when he, that is Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out. And they could not reply to these things. This is the portion of our passage that we call the setup. This is a setup. Because see, here's what's been going on. Jesus has been making his way towards Jerusalem. And as he makes his way towards Jerusalem, he's been teaching in the synagogues along the way. So his habit was, when it was the Sabbath, he would go into a synagogue and he would teach. And in the previous chapter, he did that. And while he was there teaching on the Sabbath, a woman with a disabling spirit came in and Jesus healed her. And the ruler of that synagogue became very, very angry and had a confrontation with Jesus. He said, Jesus, there are six days of the week to heal people why are you healing someone on the Sabbath? Why are, you doing the work? Why are you doing work on the day of rest? So now the next chapter, 
we see Jesus invited over to dine at the ruler of the Pharisee's house. And all the lawyers were there. Which, by the way, like if someone invites you over for dinner, they're like, this is my wife, this is my kid, this is my lawyer. Be careful. Okay, something's going down, right? Especially if it's your neighbor. So all the lawyers are there. And there's one man who has dropsy. Now, dropsy is a disease, a condition where you retain fluid in certain parts of your body. It's very disfiguring, so it's obvious, and it's very painful. So we've got all the Pharisees, all the lawyers, Jesus, one sick dude, it's the Sabbath. What are you gonna do, Jesus? It's high noon. This is a setup. This is a setup. And increasingly, because here's what they wanna do, okay? They want to paint Jesus as not being a man of his word. They want to accuse him of being a hypocrite. They say this, Jesus, if you heal this man on the Sabbath, you're doing work on the Sabbath, that's against our rules, therefore you're a hypocrite. They want to paint Jesus out to be a hypocrite. But then if he doesn't heal the man, they can say that Jesus is unloving. Well, Jesus, you say that you're all about people, you're all about taking care of people, and there's a sick dude here and you didn't do anything for him. Jesus, you're unloving. They set him up and they're watching him. And increasingly in our society, I feel like we're being put in these sorts of situations. And two of the most prominent accusations against the church this day is you guys are hypocrites or you guys are unloving. Sometimes you're unloving hypocrites. That's the accusation the church has against us. And we're being set up and we're being watched. Christian teacher, how are you gonna to react to those new education guidelines, right? Christian business owner, how are you gonna to react to those equal opportunity laws? Christian mom, how are you gonna react when your kid throws a tantrum in the grocery store line, which is clearly a setup, with the candy and the toys and the, it's not fair. How are we going to react? The world wants to paint us as hypocrites, and specifically as unloving. You say that God wishes none should perish, that God is love, but how are you gonna react when that parade comes to your town, or that kid wants to befriend your kid, or that couple wants to get married in your church? And more and more as I stand back and I look at the society we live in, I feel like the media and certain social agendas are not just counter to Christian beliefs, but are designed to be combative to them. Do you see that? We're being set up and we are being watched. So what do we do? What do we do? I think what we need to do is listen to what Jesus says about that and do what Jesus does. Because what he says and does in this chapter is so brilliant. So first off, what does Jesus say? In Matthew 10, there's another passage that I think is super important for us to look at real quick. We're just gonna grab one verse. But here's what's happening in Matthew 10. Jesus is taking his 12 disciples and he's sending them out to go into cities and to share the good news. Just like us, just like Jesus had taken us and said, hey, I'm leaving now, it's your responsibility to go into all the earth and share the gospel. That's what he's doing with his disciples in Matthew 10. And here's what he says in Matthew 10, 16. 
He says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and be innocent as doves. The first thing we have to realize is there are wolves out there. I tend not to think about that. I tend to think the best of absolutely everybody. And for the most part, that's a good way to live. You don't want to be finding a wolf behind every corner, right? Remember the little boy who cried wolf? He's dead, okay? <laughs> that's how that story ends. But here's the thing we have to be aware. Jesus says, be aware. Because there's good people. And there are fake people. And there are broken people. And there are struggling people. And there are genuine people. And there are caring people. And there are wolves even within the church. And a wolf is someone who is actively trying to take advantage of people or actively trying to discredit Christianity. There are wolves and we need to be aware. But then what's the next thing Jesus says? He says, so be wise as serpents. Okay, now look back to our passage because this is so wonderful. Look what Jesus says to these men in this setup. He asks them a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Because here's what Jesus knew. Jesus knew their rules. He knew their laws. He knew them better than they knew them. And they had no specific rule against healing on the Sabbath. So he heals the man. And then he asks them another question. Which one of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? Because he knew of another little rule they had, another little loophole, where if an ox or your son fell into a well on the Sabbath, they said you were allowed to pull him out. See, what this tells me about Jesus is he studied, knew, and understood the culture that he was teaching to. He was wise. Are we? Are we being wise about the culture that we're living in and the setups that could be possibly be coming our way? Are we studying our word? What does the Bible really say about these things? What are these questions that are come up? Are we coming to church? Well, good, you're here. Say check, one, all right? Are you discussing these things in a home group or a community group afterwards where these discussions come in and we ask some of these questions? If not, get involved and then be thinking, all right, Lord, what kind of situations might I be put into? Where from whether it's my workplace or my friend group or maybe my kids, maybe you got a kid heading off to high school this next year. What kind of questions are they coming home with? What kind of things are they going to be challenged with? And then let's study to show ourselves approved. And there's so many good resources, so many good resources. We just have to find out what questions we're wanting to address. Every good resource, if you find one, will reference back to the Bible. And if it doesn't, get rid of that resource, okay? And when it does, only the Bible is 100% true. So anytime I read something, I'm always a little bit aware. I'm always checking back with the Word. But so many people are doing thinking on so many cultural things right now, and the access to them through podcasts and through books, we need to be wise. We need to be wise. And then finally, Jesus says this, and innocent as doves. And I found that really interesting because I grew up in church. I know this verse. I've heard this verse a hundred times. 
And when I thought about it, I didn't remember it was innocent. I thought it was like kind as doves or as a gentle as a dove. Like I would have put money on gentle. It's innocent. Do you know why they couldn't accuse Jesus of being a hypocrite or of being unloving? Because he wasn't. He wasn't a hypocrite and he wasn't unloving. He was innocent. And what's so brilliant about this passage is that right after we have the showdown, Jesus turns to the Pharisees and he's going to give them three parables. And what was Jesus' accusation against the Pharisees? You're hypocrites because you're unloving, right? That's what Jesus accused the Pharisees of. So this morning, we all get to be Pharisees and listen to what Jesus says about this. So to the best of our ability, when the enemy puts us in these setup situations, we can be innocent. We can be innocent of being unloving or being hypocrites. The first parable starts in verse seven, and here's what it says. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when, they no when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you wanna be loving? Do you wanna be caring? Be humble. That's what Jesus says. He says, be humble. And then the illustration that he uses is so brilliant because 2,000 years later, we still completely get this. Because here's what you have. You have a wedding and you have a seating chart. How many of us agonized over the seating chart for our wedding, right? Like, dude, you can't put Uncle Bob next to Aunt Sally. Did you remember the fight they had Thanksgiving in 92, right? You gotta keep your mom away from your stepmom. Poor Aunt Edna just found out she has diabetes. Don't put her next to the cake table. That's just mean. And even in our weddings today, there are seats of honor, aren't there? There's that head table where the wedding party sits and then where the family sits. And, and even to this day, we totally understand this. There's seats of honor in our wedding feasts. Well, in that day, it was huge. Where you sat at a wedding feast told everyone in society how important you were, but there wasn't a seating chart. So you came in and sat yourself. It was up to you to decide how important you thought you were. And what Jesus is saying is, when you find yourself in a situation like that, don't make yourself more important than you are. Don't be false, don't be fake, be humble, be humble. Do we do this in church? Yeah, I think we do. I know I do. I know I've done it. And here's how it's typically played out. I'm sitting out there in the service, and there's a message that touches me, that challenges me, that convicts me, as the word is supposed to do. And then afterwards, there's a call to prayer. 
Maybe it's the really embarrassing one where you raise your hand and then everyone gathers around you and prays, right? Or come up afterwards and get prayed for or go and get baptized and I have not raised my hand because what would they think of me? What are they gonna think of that guy who preaches here sometimes raising his hands? Are they gonna think I need grace too? Oh no, because I do. The gospel is not for the person next to you. It's for you. It's for me. I need it. I need the grace. I need the mercy. I need the forgiveness. But when I pretend to have it all figured out, I am a hypocrite. I am being a hypocrite. Because here's the thing. We can be a Christian and a member of Edgewater and a lover of Jesus and a struggling, broken person, and still not be a hypocrite if we'll be honest and stop pretending to be something we're not, if we will be humble. And I'm absolutely convinced of this. Going forward in the culture that we live in, with its posturing and its virtue signaling and its social media self-promotion, we need a church filled with humble, honest, vulnerable people. So that when broken people walk through that door, they go, I'm home. I'm home. I can get healed here because I'm allowed to be broken. We desperately need that because it's really hard to accuse you of being a hypocrite when you're honest and humble. And I think one of the the ways that we can work this into our lives most practically, the way I can continue to keep myself humble is through a practice of confession. So my wife has been incorporating this practice into her um, spiritual life lately. And I think I'm going to to start. One, because I'm preaching on it, so I probably should do it. Um, But two, just because it seems so practical and wonderful. She said she's, she's started doing confession daily. And not confession in the way we always think of it in the movies, like with a booth and you sit down with a pastor. She says, no, 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 at the beginning of the morning, When I'm praying, I just look back through the previous day and I just ask for forgiveness for the places I fell short. Specifically, not like, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm not very patient. No, like, Lord, there was this time with my daughter when I lost it and I could have been more patient. Please forgive me for that and give me grace. Lord, where there was this thing that I did I probably shouldn't have done or watched or said or specific acts of confession on a daily basis is an incredibly great way to keep me humble. Because it reminds me, I'm the one who needs forgiveness, and I'm the one who needs mercy, and I'm the one who needs grace. I think it's so practical and important. That's the first thing Jesus says, be humble, right? So then what Jesus does is this. He turns from telling this parable, and he looks at the Pharisees, and he says this in verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So here's what happened. Jesus just got invited to the it crowds dinner, the event. 
we don't really get this in Southern Oregon, okay? Like if you lived in LA, this would be an invitation to that actor's party. Like if you lived in New York, this would be an invitation to that fundraising gala. Southern Oregon is like, you got invited to that group's camping trip, okay? It's the it crowd. And here's the thing, this is not the first time they've invited Jesus. They'd invited Jesus a few chapters ago and Jesus came and a woman showed up who was a prostitute and she started weeping and crying and she washed Jesus's feet with her hair and made everybody super uncomfortable. And then Jesus left that party and he started preaching and teaching, and he was dining with tax collectors, and he was ministering to prostitutes, and he was hanging out with podunk Galilee fishermen. And the Pharisees, they really come back to him, and they're like, Jesus, dude, if you want to be in the club, you got to stop hanging out with the sinners. And you know what Jesus does? He turns to the Pharisees and says, well, if you want to be in the kingdom, you need to start. You need to start dining with the sinners. Because the second thing Jesus says is this, be inclusive. Be inclusive. This does not actually mean don't invite your family over for dinner, okay? I know it's the holiday season. This is not an excuse. Sorry, Uncle Bob. Pastor James said, no family. It's not where we're going. It's don't habitually, don't always, don't only. And so he turns to the Pharisees and said, you need to invite the crippled and the lame and the blind to your gatherings. And I think for the Pharisees, that'd be really difficult. They don't know any crippled, blind, lame people. They're insular. They're exclusive. They knew one lame dude and Jesus just healed him. So like, they're out. And I wonder about that for myself. Like, if Jesus came to me and said, I want you to invite someone to dinner, or I want you to go have a meal with someone somewhere, or have a long conversation with someone well outside of Edgewater or your normal group. Maybe someone way outside, an addict, a member of the LBGTQ community, a Muslim, a person with a mental handicap. Would I even know where to start? Would I even know who would ask? Would I even be willing would I just be afraid that it would all be too uncomfortable? This is really challenging to me when I read through this these last couple of weeks. I don't know. Because I err on the uncomfortable. I don't like uncomfortable. I can't even watch uncomfortable movies, right? Like those awkward scenes, I leave the room. Jesus says, do it whether or not you're uncomfortable because people matter. So years ago, we had a, a warming center over there in... Uh, in the church office. And so what we would do is in the evenings, we would open up the center for homeless people to come in and to stay. And they set it up on like a Wednesday night or I can't remember what night it was, but I was always there because I was getting done helping out with high school youth group. And so I'd always see these people setting up. And there was one gal there who was kind of younger. And I, after a few weeks, I was like, I need to talk to her because like, just looking at her, this does not seem like your lane. Okay. Like, you can kind of visually assess people. Like every once in a while, someone will be like, hey, I'm involved in prison ministry. And I'm like, well, that makes sense, right? That looks... <laughs> I bet you have a gifting for that, right? <laughs> and God does that. 
God gives people giftings, and he also uses our past life experience to turn them into giftings, right? It's an amazing thing he does. But I was looking at this gal, and I'm like, I don't, I don't understand this. So I went and talked to her. I was like, how did you get involved in homeless ministry? And she's like, well, I really felt challenged in my heart that I needed to go and do this. And so I did, and it was super uncomfortable. But I came back, and I came again. She goes, now I know their names. Now they know my name. Now I know their stories. Now when I see them on the street, I say hi. Because the more I get to know broken, hurting people, the less uncomfortable they make me. Right? What a great statement. I'm so horrible at that. I'm not good at that. This has been so challenging to me. But Jesus was good at it, wasn't he? He dined with them. He got to know them. Here's what Jesus did. He looked past people's sins and past people's appearances and past people's reputations, and he got to know them because he knew every single one of them was made in his image. And I think we need to do, I need to do more of that because it's really hard to accuse the church of being unloving or being hypocritical when we're actively caring for hurting and broken people, right? but I need to get better at that. And I'm a very linear person, so I made a plan. This is my plan for me to get better at this. I'll share it with you. Maybe this is not an area you're great at. You can adopt my plan, okay? Here's the plan, get better, James, at caring for broken people. Number one, pray for opportunities. Pray for opportunities. Now, I think this does two things. First off, I think God will give us opportunities but more so, I think me actively praying for opportunities will get my eyes ready to see opportunities that I had just been walking by before. Does that make sense? I think that will make me see these. And I think that the homeless is an is a obvious example, but for most of us more often, this is gonna be someone we already have some contact with. A person at your workplace you overheard is going through marriage difficulties, or that single mom you always end up standing in line next to when you're waiting to pick up your kids, right? Or that friend of a friend who just keeps coming to mind for some reason, and you're just gonna call them out of the blue and be like, hey, can we go grab coffee? That might be an awkward conversation, but Jesus says we do it anyways. We do it anyways. And it's not a competition to find the most broken person out there, right? It's, we can be that way. I can be that way. But here's the other reason to pray for opportunities. I think it's also important to realize we're not called to every broken person we see. We're not. There's this really great story in Acts chapter three that I always keep in the back of my mind. It's this, it's Peter and James and John. It says that they are going to the temple. This is just after Jesus has died. And it says they walk past a man who had been crippled for life, who was sitting in the place that he always sat. Now here's what I know about humans. We are creatures of habit. I can tell if most of you are absent because your little area doesn't have you, okay? <laughs> you're not somewhere else, you're just not here. So this is the way that James and John and Peter have always gone to the temple, probably when Jesus was with them, which tells me this, Jesus walked past that crippled man a bunch of times because the timing wasn't right yet. And I think that's why it's so important for us to pray for opportunities. I just got back from 10 days in Kenya. 
And we have a sister church over there. I don't know if you guys know this. We've been involved with them for 10 years. It is a super cool ministry. It's right on the edge of a slum that has three to 400,000 people in it, all living in these tiny shacks, right? At no running water. You have to pay for an open toilet sewer. And at my really good friend is, is the pastor there. And we've been good buddies for a long time. And I was sitting down with him one night. I'm like, what do you, how do you, how do you handle this? Because I just look, I just see need everywhere. And he goes, you have to pray for discernment. You have to pray for discernment. You can't help everybody. And God will show you how to get involved. So that's the first thing. Pray for opportunity. Number two is this. Be willing to be interrupted. I'm busy is the easiest excuse in the world for me to not do something uncomfortable. I need to be willing to be interrupted. And then, once I'm interrupted, I need to listen and ask questions. I think so often I jump right to ad- advice. Well, this is gonna fix your... No, that's not what Jesus does. Jesus listens and he asks questions and get to know people. And then... Pray again, Lord, how do you want me to get involved here? Because sometimes it's just gonna be a one-time encounter where you listen to someone, you pray for someone. Sometimes it's gonna be a long walk and commitment with someone. Sometimes you're gonna be called to actually get involved, maybe financially fix a situation. Maybe you're called to take this person and connect them with that person. And so before we just jump in and act, which is so often my tendency, it's pray again. All right, Lord, I've listened, I've understood, I've heard this person's story. Now, how do you want me to be involved? How do you want me to be involved? And that makes us inclusive. That's gonna help make me more inclusive. See, what's so cool about this passage is that this, it's all about relationships, okay? Because in the first section, here's what Jesus is saying. When you're dealing with your peer group, be humble, This last section, he says, when you're dealing with those less fortunate than you, be inclusive. And now he's going to turn and he's going to say this, when it comes to your relationship with God, be all in. Be all in. And here's what he says. It's verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to his servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. It's kind of a confusing little parable. 
So here's what I wanna do. I wanna give you kind of the underlying historical context of this story that Jesus has told. The big theme and then the practical application for us when it comes to our subject today of being caring and loving and non-hypocritical uh, people. Okay, so here's the cultural context. Here's how a banquet would happen. The, plan, the person who's planning the banquet would send out a bunch of notices. Hey, there's going to be a banquet. You're invited. It's really like a save the date card, okay? But it wouldn't have the location or the time of the banquet. So then the host of the banquet would prepare the feast. And when the feast was ready, he would send out runners again. And those runners would go to the people and they would say, hey, the banquet is ready. Come and join with the master. And then they are given three separate excuses in our story here. Excuse number one is this, I can't go, I just bought some land. In an agrarian culture, this is business. I can't come, I'm too busy with my job, with my work, with business. The next person says, I can't come, I just bought five yoke of oxen. Well, in a society where your wealth is measured in the amount of cattle you own, this is all about possessions. I just got a bunch of new possessions. And here's the thing I know about possessions, and I'm probably, this is for men specifically, because this is for me. When I read possessions, I hear hobbies. Because that's what I buy things for, is my hobbies, right? A side-by-side, -side, not, that's not my hobby. I don't do anything that requires a helmet. It's my life rule. Um, but people are in, you know, a fishing, for me it's fishing gear, right? A golf club, right? So possessions, I'm too busy with my possessions and my hobbies to come. And the third person says, I just got married. I'm too busy with this relationship to come to the feast. Okay, so that's the historical context. Here's the big underlying theme. This is about Jews and Gentiles and heaven. Okay, because here's what happened. Jesus just told these guys, Don't in, you need to invite the sick and the lame and the blind to your feast. And then this guy says this, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. What he really just said is, isn't it gonna be great when we all go to heaven? And Jesus looks at him and says, you think you're going, huh? That's really what this parable is. Because here's the thing, this guy thought that his ticket to heaven was assured because he had been born Jewish. And Jesus says, it's so much more than that. You can't be born into this thing. You can't luck into this thing. You have to choose it. It's not enough to receive the invitation. You have to attend the feast. Here's what Romans 10:9 says. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But Lord doesn't just mean God is creator. It means Lord supreme, reigning in my life. You are my king, you are my boss. What you say goes. I have to confess you as Lord and that my goal is to serve you and be more like you. It's way more than belief, it's submission. It's submission to something higher than myself or my business or my possessions or my, my relationships. And here's the thing I know. On a Sunday morning, there are people who are here week in and week out for years. And you know all the right answers to the questions and you know all the Christian verbiage and lingo, but he's never made him 
Lord. You've never said, I'm submitted to you, God. I want you to be Lord of my life. You've never gone all in. And I pray that maybe today would be that day that you'd go and talk to Roger afterwards and be baptized and say, you're right. I'm kind of like that Pharisee. I kind of figured I was just getting in because I've been here, but I never made you Lord. I never confessed you as Lord because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, right? Okay, so that's the underlying theme But here's the practical application, because this parable is more than just about salvation, it's about the way we live as followers of Jesus. And the question to all of us today is this, are you all in? Are you all in? I mean, yes, you've received the invitation and I've accepted it and I claim Jesus as Lord of my life and he is Lord of my life, but when it actually comes down to spending time with Jesus, I'm too busy. I've got my job, I've got my hobbies, I've got my relationships. Jesus is looking for us to do more than just accept the invitation. He wants us to attend the feast. He wants us to dine with him, to put off other obligations for him, to be looking forward to spending time with him, to be all in. Because here's the problem. The world's accusation to us is this. You don't look any different than anyone else other than the fact that you have one less free morning per week. That's it. You say you're all about Jesus, but really you're all about your business and your hobbies and your possessions and your relationships. You don't look any different than me because we're not all in. We're not all in. But I wanna caveat this, okay? Because I've been in church for long enough and I've heard this message, okay? And it's really easy to sit out there and think when someone says you've gotta be all in to picture like life as a monk, where 100% of all your time is spent on spiritual things. I just read my Bible, and I pray, and I meditate. And the thing is, if that's what this passage is about, I'm out. I'm out. It's not going to work. But here's the thing. I think when done correctly and in balance, work and hobbies and relationships are spiritual. They are spiritual. Because what is the first thing that God gave Adam? Before he gave him Eve, right? A job. Young men, that's the order, okay? Job, then girl, okay? (laughs) It's divine, okay? Good job, better girl, okay? That's... (laughs) And God created this. And he said he created it for us to enjoy. And as we're out there in it, hobbies and fun, and we can bring God into all of that. And God is inherently relational. The problem is when I compartmentalize my life, when I'm like, okay, this is the time I have for hobbies, and this is the time I have for work, and this is the time I have for relationships, and this is the time I have for God. And I grew up thinking, that being all in meant that if my time was a pie chart, as long as the spiritual pie was bigger, I was good. Okay, it looks like this. Right? As long as the spiritual pie is bigger, then I'm all in. Here's the problem. That's impossible. Right? Because unless I don't want to sleep, I'm getting fired. Right? That's not what this means. This means 
to be all in that we take our relationship with God into every aspect of our lives. Here's what it's supposed to look like. Serving my king. And it's all part of that. Work and hobbies. And Notice you actually get more time for hobbies in this chart. Just, just saying. <laughs> Relationships and church. And then that one I think is key. Private time with Jesus. For me, that's the key to unlocking this being all in and bringing Jesus into every other part of my life. And I find that when I'm compartmentalizing, when I'm like, I have my work over here and life over here and then Jesus over here, it's simply because I'm not actually spending any time with Jesus. And when I really start spending time with him, it becomes so easy and natural to bring him into every other aspect of my life. Be all in. Because then we will look different than the world and we will be innocent of their accusation. So that's what Jesus said. He said, be humble, be inclusive, and be all in. And then what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? He chose people. He healed the guy. Jesus always put people first, regardless of how it would affect him, regardless of how it messed with his time or his plans or how it would hurt him. He knows this is gonna be drama if I heal this guy, but it doesn't matter because he's broken and he needs me and Jesus always put people first. That's what we're supposed to do. Exactly like Jesus, we put people first. No matter what it will cost us, time, money, energy, reputation, we put people first. And I'm so glad Jesus did. Because a long time before I ever had the opportunity to be a Pharisee, I was the guy with dropsy. I think we all were, right? I'm the sick dude. And my life is painful and disfiguring because of the sin in it. And Jesus chose me. And he said, no matter what it costs me, I'm gonna heal him. And I'm so thankful because it cost him everything. It cost him everything to heal me. 